2: Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.
3: Welcome to Part-Time Genius, the production of iHeartRadio.
4: Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango?
3: So did you know the world's largest bee isn't as extinct as we thought? Not as extinct as we
4: thought. <laughs> I kind of feel like that's too bad. <laughs> no, it's actually a good thing. How, how are giant monster bees a good thing? So for, for starters, the
3: bees aren't exactly monsters. They're only about an inch and a half long, and they've got a two and a half inch wingspan. So it's about the size of a thumb, or I guess three times the size of the average honeybee. Not the size of Mothra, as, uh, like you might be imagining.
4: I mean, maybe not, but I actually just pulled up a picture of one of these things while you were talking. And I have to say, this is the most terrifying bee I have seen in my life. Like, why do they have such (laughs) massive pinchers on their faces? They almost look like these stag beetles, but just creepier.
3: Yeah, so I was trying not to mention that because it makes them look so much scarier, but they're actually just used to scrape resin off trees to build their homes, so it's not that scary. But here's what's really interesting. The species was first discovered in Indonesia, and this was back in 1859, and then nobody could find it again after that. So it was just presumed to have gone extinct. And then in 1984, this entomologist stumbled across the bees alive and well in Indonesia. And he collected the specimen. He wrote about a discovery, but he didn't get any video or photos. And then the bees
4: trail went cold again. But it sounds like now somebody has found them again. Is that right?
3: Yeah, so they thought they were extinct, but it's totally right. In January this year, this photographer named Clay Bolt he actually made history by finding the giant bees in the wild for the very first time. And it sounds like it was a pretty surreal experience because apparently the female bees make this really deep thrumming sound with their wings. So he could not only hear them, he could actually feel the air being displaced as they flew by. And it was amazing because... It's really this creature that he'd only ever imagined about, right? And suddenly he has this super tangible and memorable experience with them. Anyway, Clay's account got me thinking that this week it'd be really fun to look into creatures that had come back to life. And so that's what we're going to talk about. All these weird cases out there where creatures seemingly died and then returned. So let's dive in.
4: Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikader. And On the other side of that soundproof glass, bringing a dead fern back to life. At least I think that's what he's doing. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil.
3: Oh, is that what he's doing? I, I thought Tristan just brought in his neglected
4: houseplant. Actually, Tristan's trick only works with one kind of plant, what's called a resurrection fern, which is not the fern that he's got over there. But, you know, during a drought or a heat spell, the ferns will turn brown and they shrivel up. And if you look at them, they look completely dead. But then you just splash a little water on them and presto, it takes like 24 hours and the leaves unfurl, turn green again, and the whole thing is good as new. I mean, it's kind of like magic.
3: Yeah, it does sound like something you'd study at Hogwarts in the Mm -hmm. herbology class or whatever.
4: (laughs) It's pretty cool. And even though it does seem like magic, there is, of course, a scientific explanation on how these ferns come back to life. These resurrection ferns never actually die during this dying out process. In fact, these plants can lose up to 97% of their water content. And once they're exposed to water again, they'll still spring right back. So, you know, as long as the fern can hold on to at least 3% of its water, it actually won't die. That's
3: pretty incredible. So those numbers can't hold up for most plants, right?
4: No. With most plants, if they lose more than 10% of their water, they are completely done. And so the saving grace for resurrection ferns is, you know, it's their ability to synthesize these special proteins called dehydrants. And so these allow the cell walls of the plant to kind of fold and unfold as needed rather than just cracking and crumbling like other plants do when they dry out. And believe it or not, that's not the resurrection ferns only claim to fame. because back in 1997, astronauts actually took a bunch of these ferns with them on the space shuttle discovery. And this was a feat that earned the plant the title of first fern in space. Isn't that special? (laughs) I like it. But what sort of experiments were they running on these plants in space? Well, basically, we wanted to see if the plants could still resurrect themselves in zero gravity, and apparently they could with no problem. And as later explained, the resurrection firm, quote, proved to be a hardy space traveler and exhibited regeneration patterns unaltered by its orbital adventure. So not only can they cheat death, they can do it while rocketing through space at thousands of miles an hour. I do like that. But to be fair,
3: resurrection ferns aren't the only ones to master the old back from the dead routine. And it's not just flowers and trees getting into the act either. The animal kingdom has its own resurrection-like events, including some insects and amphibians that can freeze themselves during winter and then thaw out in the spring,
4: totally alive and healthy. But again, like with the ferns, those animals don't technically die though, right?
3: Right, but they come pretty close. Like you can take the wood frogs, which we've talked about forever ago on the show, but when temperatures drop, the wood frogs go into what's basically the state of suspended animation and all of their processes shut down. So there's no heartbeat, there's no breathing, nothing, but their cells stay alive regardless. And it's thanks to this handy adaptation they've evolved that lets them survive for long periods
4: without oxygen. So I remember talking about them, but remind me how long they can actually stay like that.
3: So it it can vary. I mean, most wood frogs do this extreme hibernation for a few days at a time just to cope with like a cold snap or something like that. But they can stay
4: frozen for longer, even for weeks if they need to. Which is pretty amazing. And you mentioned their cells still receive oxygen during this big sleep, and that makes sense. But what I'm wondering is how those cells survive the freezing process at all. I mean, there's water inside those cells and water expands as it freezes to ice. And so it seems like those newly formed ice crystals would just break the cells apart from within.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's a big part of why cryopreservation isn't really an option for humans. Our cells just aren't equipped to handle a deep freeze. And it's actually the same for wood frogs. If their cells froze, they would die too. But that's why whenever there's this sub-zero temperature that sets in, the frog's central organ starts expelling moisture. And this way, the water surrounding their organs freezes into ice, but their organs themselves and their cells don't. And that's not the only trick either. Before a wood frog fully freezes, its body floods the veins with a special glucose molecule that works like an antifreeze. So when the glucose reaches the frog cells, it'll dissolve in the water and bond with the water molecules. And this means that water molecules in the cell won't be able to bind with other water molecules to form ice. So even if
4: the water in a cell reaches sub-zero temperatures, it still won't freeze. Okay, I think I got it. So so they really use the same strategy on a cellular level as they do for like their central organs, right? Exactly, but the more researchers learn about the frog's
3: approach, the better we get at perfecting things like freezing human organs for transport. And that technique might help us perfect cryopreservation in the future, you know, getting humans
4: into this act of resurrecting themselves. Which is a a little bit creepy. And also, if you think about it, some humans have already jumped the gun on the whole resurrection thing. I was actually reading about this rare phenomenon called auto-resuscitation, which is when a person who is declared dead spontaneously comes back to life. Spontaneously. So this isn't like a patient who's flatlined,
3: that doctors use those... uh, clamps on and jolt them back to life. It's someone who comes back
4: to life on their own. That's right. So according to a 2007 medical review, I believe this was the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine, there have actually been over 30 cases of auto-resuscitation since the initial report on this condition back in 1982. So on average, these patients returned to life, did so about seven minutes after doctors stopped administering CPR. One patient made it all the way to the hospital morgue before suddenly returning to life. I mean, (laughs) can you imagine what that must have been like for the poor folks who had to wheel that person down there and in the morgue no less? But it's just so like of all places to witness someone coming back from the dead, this would have been such a weird experience. So these people sort of pop back up. Do they live for a while? I mean, the sad reality is that the majority of these patients die shortly after they're auto resuscitated. But I think what's amazing, though, is that in a little over a third of the reported cases, the patients make a full recovery with little or no neurological damage that is wild so do doctors have any idea of why this is happening well i mean it's tough to say for certain because there have only been like we said 30 something cases reported in the last 40 years and that's you know not a lot of data to go on but that said the reports do offer some clues about what might be going on here For instance, the use of CPR, which is something that's in all of these reported cases. So remember I said the patients came back a few minutes after CPR was stopped. Well, that gap in time might actually be the key to understanding the whole phenomenon. It's a little bit complicated. So I pulled this good breakdown from the Smithsonian and and here's how they explain it. One popular theory is that dynamic hyperinflation, which can occur during CPR if the lungs are rapidly filled with air without adequate time to exhale. In theory, when emergency doctors stop CPR, the lung pressure caused by dynamic hyperinflation returns to normal, and the blood begins to circulate with greater ease, producing an auto-resuscitation effect. Huh.
3: So uh, how can doctors guard against this kind of thing? Like, is there a set amount of time they need to wait?
4: I don't think there's like a hard and fast rule around this, but doctors who've studied the subject do recommend waiting at least 10 or 15 minutes after CPR has ceased before declaring someone dead, you know, just to be on the safe side here. That is so
3: strange. Like. There's this period of time when death isn't necessarily final that someone might still pop back to life.
4: Yeah, I mean it's it's you know it's not super likely but it it does happen. It makes you wonder about where the cutoff is, like that point past which death is irreversible. It might be, you know, more fluid than we had first guessed.
3: Yeah, I I think you're right. In fact, I I was reading about this concept people talk about in the conservation world called the Lazarus taxon Mm -hmm. or Lazarus species. And it's basically a group of plants and animals that were believed to be extinct, but were later rediscovered in the wild, like the giant bee I mentioned at the top of the show. It's not the same as the biological resurrections we've been talking about, but it's another interesting case of death not being quite as final as we first looked at.
4: I definitely want to hear more about this. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break.
1: Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
0: My best hopes...
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about Lazarus species. These are the extinct plants and animals that turned out to be not so extinct after all. And speaking of Lazarus, I actually forgot to mention this earlier, but auto-resuscitation actually shares some biblical inspiration. It's actually nicknamed the Lazarus Phenomenon. Have you heard of this? Mm -mm. So in both cases, the name is the nod to the New Testament story where Jesus performs a miracle by raising this man named Lazarus from the dead. So kind of a fun, if not surprising, bit of overlap between religion and science here. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But the term
3: Lazarus taxon was coined in the 1980s by a couple of paleontologists, and they were studying the fossil record. They noticed some organisms seemed to disappear during one of Earth's massive extinction events, and then miraculously reappear on the record later. And these species taken together formed what the scientists call the Lazarus taxon. So these days, the term applies more broadly, not just to fossilized organisms, but also to living species that have been rediscovered after the presumed extinction. Actually, there's a slight variation on this called the Elvis taxon, which is species that seem like they reemerge, but it's actually an imposter. This Hmm. is a true thing. But back to the Lazarus, like you think it's the small club of species, but there are actually about 350 species on that list. Includes everything from plants to insects
4: to every kind of vertebrae. Oh, wow. So it really runs the gamut. But what are some of the most famous on the list, or maybe just a few favorites you came across?
3: So my favorite species are, are the ones that turned up in these super unexpected places. And one of the oldest and most famous of these is definitely the coelacanth, which is this ancient type of fish that was believed to have gone extinct over 65 million years ago. It was in the supposed to be wiped out in that same extinction event that uh, claimed the dinosaurs.
4: You know, I actually think
3: I've seen these guys before. They live like way down deep, don't they? Yeah, I mean, they're bottom dwellers for sure. But that's part of the reason it took us so long to find one alive. That said, living silicants weren't discovered thanks to some technological breakthrough or, or uh, some sort of landmark expedition. Instead, it all happened by sheer chance. And here's how it went down. So in December 1938, this Natural History Museum curator named Marjorie Courtney Latimer was strolling the docks in East London, South Africa. Apparently, she did this often as part of her work for the museum. She would just visit the local fishermen. And if anyone thought they'd caught something interesting that day... Marjorie would take a closer look at their catch. And on that day in December, she indeed found something interesting in the hall of this fisherman named Captain Hendrik Goosen. So in his pile of fish, there was this bizarre looking fin that Marjorie had never seen at the docks before. And this is how she described it. I picked away at a layer of slime to reveal the most beautiful fish I had ever seen. It was pale mauvey blue with faint flecks of whitish spots. It had an iridescent silver-blue-green sheen all over it. It was covered in hard scales, and it had four limb-like fins and a strange puppy dog tail.
4: Wait, let, let me make sure I have this straight. So she found what is basically a living fossil, and this was at a South African fish market? Yeah, and it was actually really big too.
3: So the silicon she found at the market weighed 127 pounds, which made it tough to transport back to the museum. And in the end, Marjorie and her assistant, they managed to get the fish into the backseat of a taxi, but they nearly got thrown of that too because the fish smelled so bad. Apparently, as they pushed it through the door and finally got in, the driver was shouting, no stinking fish in my taxi at her.
4: <laughs> I mean, honestly, can you really blame the guy?
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can. And, and once they explained, the circumstance and probably how big a tip they were going to give, the driver agreed to help. Although that wasn't the only obstacle Marjorie faced that day. So when, when she got the fish back to the museum, she still wasn't sure what she'd found. Her expertise was actually in birds, not fish. And and when she asked the chairman of the museum board to help her identify the specimen, he told her it's nothing more than a rock cod. And then he left to go on
4: his holiday. You know, it's funny, it almost reads like parody, but all right. Well, obviously the museum was no help. So how did Marjorie ultimately crack this
3: case? So the first thing she did was to find some way to preserve the fish long-term. She tried the morgue at her local hospital, but they flat-out refused to store fish, no matter how ancient it was. And uh, in the end, she had to settle for getting it taxidermied instead. So she reached out to a fish curator at a different South African museum, this guy J.L.B. Smith, and she sent the description and sketches of what she'd found. Within a month or so, Smith decided to make a trip to see the fish for himself, and he definitely wasn't disappointed with what he found. In fact, listen to how he later described the day he arrived at Marjorie's Museum. Quote, Although I had come prepared, the first sight of the fish hit me like a white-hot blast and made me feel shaky and queer, my body tingled. I stood as if stricken to stone. Yes, there was not a shadow of a doubt, scale by sail, bone by bone, fin by fin. It was a
4: true coelacanth. I mean, it must have felt like such vindication.
3: Yeah, but plus it must have made the museum chairman feel like such a chump when he got back from his vacation.
4: I still—I mean, I know I said this earlier, but I still can't believe she found an extinct species at a fish market. It's just, it seems like such a weird place to find this.
3: Well, the the craziest part is that it wasn't even the only time that's happened. In fact, (laughs) there are plenty of Lazarus species that have showed up at food markets There's the smooth-toothed black-tipped shark that reappeared in this fish market in the Middle East. There's the Laotian rock rat, which was rediscovered at a meat market. And and the (laughs) Arakan forest turtle, which debuted at a food market in China. But the list just
4: keeps going. Pretty sure you made up a couple of those. but um, <laughs> And I'm not sure what it says about us in the first place that we find so many supposedly extinct animals on our dinner tables. Just, it's just so weird. <laughs> yeah, it kind of makes me wonder if any Lazarus species have actually gone
3: extinct for real, like that way. Like the humans mm-hmm. just ate too many of them without scientists walking by and stopping them from eating. But uh, I, I know we've got a few more things to tackle, but first let's take a quick break.
1: Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy.
1: My best
0: hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and and work towards it.
2: I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true and I'm
1: not offended by that.
0: Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them.
1: Oh, uh, thank God for the limits.
3: Welcome back to Part Time Genius. So, well, I know you wanted to talk about de-extinction, which is the ability to bring vanished species back to life. Uh, do you think that's something we'll be able to do one day? And if so, how long until we're all riding woolly mammoths to work, like God intended?
4: <laughs> I mean, I think it's going to be a little while on that one. But yeah, you know, to the question of whether we'll be able to bring an extinct species back, I mean, the the truth is, we already have, or at least we we sort of did. So I, I'm curious about the sort of you speak of. <laughs> well, all right. Well, let me back up just a little bit here. So have you ever heard of Celia, who happens to be the last Bucardo? No, it sounds like a Tolkien character, though. It's, it's actually an extinct species of ibex. They used to live in Spain and I think in southern France. And so... Basically, picture a mountain goat or a ram, and and you're not far off from this. But, all right, so back in 2000, the last Bucardo on Earth was sadly crushed to death by a falling tree, and her name was Celia. Sure. RIP Celia. Right, right. So that wasn't the end of the story there, though, because scientists tried to revive her species, and they used the nucleus of a cell extracted intact from Celia. So you're saying they cloned her? Well, I mean, sort of like this wasn't like with Dolly the sheep where her nucleus could be implanted in the egg of a sheep from the same species. I mean, remember, Celia was the last one and there weren't any of her kind around to donate an egg. So instead, scientists inserted the nucleus from Celia into the unfertilized egg cell of a different kind of Spanish ibex. Then they took the resulting embryo and transferred it to the womb of a living goat. It's just a lot of connections here. <laughs> and almost a year later in July of 2003, the first baby Bucardo since Celia was born.
3: Which is kind of amazing. It sounds like some bizarre uh, science turducken, like, mm-hmm. like a Bucardo wrapped in an Ibex wrapped in a living goat. But uh, right. is, is the Bucardo back for
4: real now? It's, it's de extinct. No, unfortunately, the baby Bucardo was born with a lung defect and only survived seven minutes. And so that means that depending on how you look at it, the Bucardo has really gone extinct twice at this point, oh, I guess. No. <laughs> so not, not the happy ending we might have looked for. But of course, that's only if you consider that the Bucardo made from Celia's cell to be a true Bucardo and not some kind of hybrid, you know, like a Spanish Ibex with Bucardo-like traits, I guess.
3: So I, I guess any other species we try to de-extinct would also be that way, right? Like, like we couldn't make a 100% woolly mammoth.
4: Yeah, it would always be an animal with cells that most certainly contain elephant DNA and just a little bit of mammoth DNA, like the nucleus they took from Celia, you know. And, and with a long extinct creature like a woolly mammoth, you'd be even further into hybrid territory. And that's because there aren't any living mammoths to harvest intact nuclei from. So scientists would be working with far less DNA than they had with Celia the Bucardo. So all the efforts that you hear about bringing back the woolly mammoth those aren't attempts to clone a mammoth so much as they are attempts to make an elephant-mammoth hybrid. And so there are new genome editing methods like CRISPR, so scientists could kind of cheat a little bit by changing sure. the DNA sequences of elephants to it'll look a little bit more like the DNA sequences of mammoths. That's why I started by saying that de-extinction is sort of possible. I mean, if you're willing to accept hybrids as the real thing or close enough to it, then I guess de-extinction will definitely be something we can do within the next decade or so. But on the other hand, if you want a full-on recreation of a vanished species, the same genes, same behaviors, all of that, I mean, that's pretty much never going to happen. And in most cases, there just aren't enough ancient DNA lying around to completely reconstruct an animal's genome. So for all of us Jurassic
3: Park fans, it does sound like dinosaur and woolly mammoth hybrids are still on the table in, in the not-so-distant future, and gene editing could actually get them looking pretty close to how they did originally.
4: Yeah, and that's actually more like the Jurassic Park dinosaurs than straight up clones would be anyway. And, you know, I'm not sure if you remember, but in the movie, they filled the gaps in the DNA sequences with frog DNA and they messed with the genome. So they actually all have scales instead of feathers. So we're on the verge of being able to do something pretty similar to that. I mean, We'd probably use chicken DNA as our gap instead of frogs, but the basic idea wouldn't be too far off from that.
3: And so what about extinct species that have died out more recently, like hundreds or thousands of years ago, for instance, instead of millions? Like,
4: would those actually be better candidates for de-extinction? Absolutely. I mean, the passenger pigeon is one example that comes up a lot. They went extinct in the early 20th century, so recovering their DNA wouldn't be that difficult. And there's a good chance the eggs from a related species of pigeon might be close enough of a match to create a viable embryo. But funnily enough, researchers say that the easiest species to resurrect would actually be the Neanderthal, which is just so (laughs) weird to think about. So according to Scientific American, quote, there appear to be just slightly more than 30,000 genetic mutations that differentiate us from them. And Homo sapiens is the complicated organism best understood by human geneticists. So, of course, bringing a, a sentient human species back to life is a giant ethical can of worms. So I don't imagine we'll be bringing Neanderthals back anytime soon, or at least I'm telling myself that.
3: (laughs) Which is probably for the best because, you know, I've heard that even though there's no ideal candidate for de-extinction, the woolly mammoth would still be the best choice just because of how much goodwill it would generate in the public. And it makes sense if you think about it, right? Like bringing back the woolly mammoth has been a collective dream for decades now. Plus they Mm -hmm. look big, furry elephants. Like it just feels so much less threatening than a T-Rex.
4: I mean, still pretty threatening, but but I I think you're right. And there's actually another reason why raising the mammoth might be the best way to go. And it's something that you'd probably never guess, which is climate change. So you're going to have to explain this one. All right. Well, it sounds ridiculous, but there actually is something to this. According to Nat Geo, Siberia was home to mammoths and these other giant grazing mammals about 12,000 years ago. And back then, the entire region was a grassland, not the moss-covered tundra that it is today.
3: So I, I'm having a tough time understanding this. You're saying the landscape changed into something less
4: productive just because the mammoths went extinct? It is possible, yeah. I mean, the idea is that the mammoths and the other grazing animals used to maintain the grassy steps by you know, trampling moss and shrubs, breaking up the soil, fertilizing hmm. it with their droppings. But, you know, once the mammoths went the way of the buffalo, the moss and the trees took over. And, you know, this region gradually transformed into a tundra. And so some researchers think that reintroducing mammoths to the tundra could actually cause the ecosystem to shift back again.
3: Which is really interesting, and it sounds like good news for the mammoths and, and maybe for any would-be farmers in the region. But how
4: exactly would this help with climate change? Well, you know, it's because the frozen ground in Siberia contains a huge amount of carbon, about twice as much as what's in the atmosphere already. And the only thing keeping those carbon stores in check are the region's Arctic temperatures. So as temperatures continue to rise, the chance of that permafrost thawing out and that carbon being released rises with them. And that's where the mammoths would come in. Like, If they were able to transform the region back into a grassland, the carbon stores just might stay put. And Smithsonian actually had a nice breakdown of why this is exactly. And and so here's how they explained it. Because grass absorbs less sunlight than trees, this would cause the ground to absorb less heat and in turn keep the carbon pools and their greenhouse gases on ice for longer. Large numbers of mammoths would also trample snow cover, stopping it from acting like insulation for the ground and allowing the permafrost to feel the effects of the bitter Arctic winters. Again, this in theory would keep the ground colder for longer.
3: Yeah, I don't see how anything could go wrong with this plan. No, it's going to be great. (laughs) It is funny. Like on one hand, resurrecting a species kind of feels like playing God. And that's one of the main arguments you'll hear from opponents of de-extinction And yet at the same time, since humans were responsible for so many recent extinctions, it also feels like we were playing God when we wiped these creatures out in the first place. So maybe bringing them back is a way to right some of the wrongs our species has done to nature, especially in cases like a mammoths, where the revival might also benefit the environment as a whole.
4: Yeah, but admit it, Mango. You, your main motivation is just wanting to ride one to work. You said it earlier.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, if riding a woolly mammoth to work is wrong, then brother, I don't want to be right. <laughs> <laughs> I
4: had a dollar for every time you said that. All right, well, while we're waiting on science to deliver on that promise, what do you say we have ourselves a quick fact off? Sounds great. <laughs> All right, I'll kick it off here. So remember that Siberian permafrost that we talked about a few minutes ago? Well, it turns out it's home to more than just carbon deposits. Just last year, researchers discovered that the frigid ground had also preserved ancient life in the form of two... 40,000-year-old nematodes, or roundworms. So even more incredibly, the researchers were able to successfully, quote, defrost the creatures, according to a report from the Siberian Times. Isn't that amazing? There's something called the Siberian Times. Uh, (laughs) Not the fact. The fact that there is a Siberian (laughs) Times. I just love that. And if that's true, then roundworms can endure cryopreservation for way, way longer than we thought. The previous record for a nematode was... It was revived like 39 years of dormancy or something like that. But not only that, it would also mean that those resurrected roundworms are now the oldest living animals on the planet and by a pretty wide margin, of course. Yeah.
3: So so I've got a weird one for you. The name Lazarus came up a lot this week. So I, I did some digging on the name itself. And it turns out it's going through a bit of a resurgence right now. Uh, According to rankings on, on the top baby naming sites, the name Lazarus is now more popular than it's been in over a century and so what what are these reports based on exactly? Yeah, so a lot of the data comes from the users on these sites, but the rankings also pull from the Social Security Administration. So things like how many babies born in 2018 were named Lazarus shows up on this. The data goes all the way back to about 1900, which is when the name Lazarus was at its peak as the 1105th most popular name in the country. <laughs> Wait, and that was the name at its peak popularity? Yeah, but but you've got to keep this in perspective. For the rest of the 20th century, the name hovered between the 3,000th and 4,000th most popular name, <laughs> and it started to rise in the early 90s, and now it's back in the low thousands, just like it was about 100 years ago.
4: Oh, wow. That's impressive. All <laughs> right, well, one neat thing I read about this week is an experiment with cryopreserved seeds, and it's called the Project Baseline Resurrection Approach. So basically millions of seeds from different plant species are being collected and then shipped to a seed bank in Colorado, and then they're kept on ice for anywhere between five and 50 years. So the idea is that once the time is up, scientists of the future can actually warm up the seeds, plant them, and bring them back to life. Oh, wow. And that way they'll be able to compare these ancestor plants with their descendants, you know, which will be the plants collected from the exact same location where the ancestor seeds were first harvested. And so the hope is that by you know, looking at this side-by-side comparison across multiple decades, it'll actually allow the scientists to see how a certain plant population changed over time.
3: That's really cool. It's kind of like a botanical time capsule. Yeah. But okay, here's a good one I found about Caspian horses, which Nat Geo describes as having the hallmark movie stylings of uh, all Lazarus species. So here's what happened. In 1957, an American horse breeder and researcher named Louise Leyland married this Iranian aristocrat named Narsi Firuz, and they moved to Tehran together. And a few years later, the couple opened a children's riding academy so that Louise could share her love of riding with all the locals. The only problem was that the stallions native to the region were way too rough and bad tempered. For the kids to ride safely. So Louise asked around and she hoped to find this alternative horse for the kids. And she started hearing these rumors about a group of strong but friendly miniature horses that lived tucked away in this remote mountain region near the Caspian Sea. So based on that hunch, Louise got some friends and they went on this expedition. And sure enough, they actually found the group of horses that they'd heard about. Mm. And the more time she spent with them, the more she realized they resembled this ancient lost breed of horse that these Persian royals had carved all over their palaces. It was called the Caspian horse. So Louise made the connection almost immediately, but it wasn't until the 1990s that DNA testing was finally able to confirm her suspicion. But Louise knew the horse's pedigree from the start, so she brought them back to On for his students. And to this
4: day, Caspians are still considered the ideal starter horse for young riders. Oh, wow. All right. So to recap, a riding instructor turned adventurer discovered a lost colony of royal horses and then marched them back to civilization so the children of Iran would have something safe to ride. Uh huh. (laughs) I don't think I can top that today, Mega. So I think you win the trophy. Congratulations. Thank you so much.
3: And that does it for today's Part Time Genius from Gabe, Tristan, Will, and me. Thank you so much for listening.
4: Part Time Genius is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.